When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. This is Page of Jack, season seven, episode 14. Little taxi, that is two children, part one. Oh. oh, is that AI or is that Alexander? <laughs> that is Alexander. He recorded that for me yesterday. Oh, <laughs> sweetie boy. That's a wonderful. <laughs> People that are going to be, who haven't been with us long enough are going to be like, what was that? If someone just dropped in, I'm gonna, I really hope someone's like, what just happened? <laughs> Dear Pints with Jack listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading some of Lewis's letters, which have been brought together in several different collections. In season seven, we've already read Letters to an American Lady, which was his correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne, leaving his letters to children and the Latin letters of C.S. Lewis. And today is our first episode going through the first of those remaining collections, Letters to Children. Hence, my son Alexander doing the introduction. <laughs> now, we're not going to be getting into the letters themselves in this episode. Instead, we're going to be discussing the opening sections of the book, which consider Jack's own childhood, as well as his contact with and views of children. We'll dive into the letters next episode. All blessings, Andrew, David, and Matt. So, are you ready for a new book, gentlemen? Yes, here, here. I think I was a little bit surprised as I've gotten beyond this recording into the next one about halfway through the letters. It's going to be different than the last one. In hindsight, it was naive of me to think it would be similar, but the last one was a singular person. So, relationship is developing. So, as you go, I would say we got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and the content was overlapping and you start to see themes. This one, it's there are certain individuals where there's multiple letters back and forth, but there's a lot of, I don't want to say one-offs, but just kind of correspondence like that. And so, it's going to be different, I guess is what I'm saying, which I'm looking forward to. And I would say the thing that I'll be curious, we'll see how the Holy Spirit moves these dialogues. But since there's references to Narnia in a lot of these, it's going to be intriguing to see mm-hmm. what conversations spur out of that, particularly your guys' knowledge around some of that stuff, because you guys have a deeper Narnia knowledge of myself. We've read a- them. <laughs> 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 that was a good it's a one. Good start. <laughs> <laughs> we are almost we are like a week away from ever being able to make that joke again. I uh, have the last battle recording, I think January 23rd or something. So this is going We've to be We've read them twice. <laughs> well, okay, you can make that joke, yes. <laughs> but have you read the last battle yet? Because I said it's kind of crucial when you're reading these letters to know what goes on. Sadly, I am like chapter five or six. I'm audio booking it first right now, and then I'll be reading the actual book underlying when I get back to Michigan. So, Well, I love this collection of letters to children. Um, I can't remember when I, when I read it, but it was, I think, fairly early on. But in 2003, when I was at the Wade Center, I got Lyle Dorset and Marge Mead to sign mm. my British first edition of Letters to Children. <laughs> so, there's my flex. But it's just really charming. A couple of things that I'm sure that we'll, uh, we'll get to. Kristen talks about one of the last letters when she gives talks often. I love his advice on writing 
And even just mm-hmm. this morning, Matt and I were uh, were looking at a passage that I found, oh, that's where that came from. But it has really crawled into my kind of practical life about how to live. And uh, and so, yeah, really looking forward to that. Also, because it's a new season, um, our dear friend Bud gave us his traditional gift. And just yesterday, I picked up my Lefroig Carjas, the 2023 Carjas matured in uh, white port and Madeira casks. And so, very much looking forward to that and thankful for his gift. Are you drinking that today? Uh, I don't know that I have a glass. I think I'm still on coffee. It's 9.30 in the morning. You know, we could pause or I could drink it straight out of the bottle, but (laughs) (laughs) do it, do it. (laughs) If you make any Till We Have Faces references, you have to drink it out of the bottle. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, there you go that below all right that's fat look he's opening it already <laughs> i'm preemptively doing it how about you matt what are you drinking sadly just coffee all right he did it <laughs> okay you're allowed one reference no more one reference but my question is this andrew actually genuinely as someone who's probably drinking lafroy does that taste different than the traditional Lefroy 10, which is what I've had. Uh, you know, I don't think that I've ever slummed low enough to have the Lef- I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that I remember <laughs> drinking a Lefroy 10. <laughs> I maybe should get one and, and A-B it. So, that's I'm not sure. That's pretty much the only, I mean, that's like the main Lefroy, because when I went to all the stores, they really only have Lefroy 10. Okay. 18 doesn't really obviously sell. I didn't see like 16s or- The 18 is like out of print. The 18 has been gone for years, so it's hundreds of dollars. Um, When Malcolm was- at the seminary, somebody bought us a round of nice Lefroig, and I, I can't remember what it was. So, but yeah, it's nice. On a more serious note, I want to notice, I want to make mention that just this week, a couple of days ago, um, Stan Matson, the founder of the C.S. Lewis Foundation, passed into eternity. He always signed his letters, yours for the journey and further up, further in. And so we're grateful that he is further up and further in. Mm. And as I mentioned in my Facebook post, I can't imagine how much I owe him. I met my my wife through the foundation. All most of my speaking engagements started there, and he's was just just a master of a uh, of a man and did so much good in this world. So um, Malcolm Guide actually wrote an acrostic poem for Stan Matson, and that's floating around on the internet now. So mm. <laughs> so I want to uh, want to salute him, and he certainly was the founder of many feasts. Mm-hmm. Well. Well, I am drinking Gatorade because we have lots of it because <laughs> over Christmas, everyone was sick. Ooh. So, I have a bright blue beverage in my hand. And I did just want to mention, we we discovered the source of the non-alcoholic beer that I've been drinking. It was ah. Steve Clancy's son, Sean. Mm, He's okay. the one that works for Best Day Brewery. And I've put in a new order because we're going to be doing more morning recordings. And I still want a beer, but a non-alcoholic one. <laughs> so that should be making uh, appearances w- uh, later this season. Excellent. I'll look at that. And if they've got something decent or something to my liking, I just had a pint with a priest friend of mine at a the Magical Meat Boutique in Mount Dora, but it's a British pub and they have... Um, Fuller's on cask. Mm. So I had a cask drawn uh, London Pride the other day. Mm-hmm. So cheers for that. Well, let me uh, let me do the toast here. It's going to be a toast for an individual we just had a call with a couple days ago. Thus, it'll be fresh in my mind of of who this individual is from like a personality perspective and interests and passions. Because we always love to have conversations with our top tier supporters. But this one's to you, Aldo. And although we know from our conversation, Narnia played a special role in your love of Lewis, 
And so as we touch on these themes in this book, we pray the Spirit will speak through Lewis and kindle a deeper love within. Cheers. 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 For those listening, we, we don't really bring this up too much, but if you really love this ministry that we do and you feel called to kind of support us on Patreon, it's a gift of all of the ones that do. And we actually have a Slack community that's grown to a couple hundred, maybe a few, and I'm not sure the exact number of individuals are, they're lovers of Lewis. And what's been so cool is, to, is as more and more people have supported us and that community has grown, it's hit that like network threshold where you have power users, consumers and stuff, and you have enough people posting that you can just really get some beautiful commentary on that. So we don't typically throw that out there and we haven't done that in a while, but if you feel called to, it's just such a great blessing. It allows us to magnify this ministry, to do more of these after hours, to have production quality editing with this and just try to build a top tier podcast. Um, and again, probably the one final thing I haven't said this while, we don't pay ourselves anything. Uh, we don't even buy scotch with it. That's why it's so <laughs> no, true. No. Specifically earmarked for alcohol. For this, yes. Um, <laughs> we literally zero kind of goes in that kind of thing. So we just really appreciate that uh, from all of you guys. Well, let's dive into Letters to Children. And the forward of this book was written by Douglas Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson. Is there anything you guys wanted to say about that section? say there wasn't anything too new having had the chance to interview with him and have that conversation. I would say the thing that I really loved though, the, and I put this in quote, is he talked about how he would read to him some of the stuff and he would give his feedback. And when he didn't, mm-hmm. Douglas meaning would give his feedback. And when it wasn't necessarily like purely glowing, but he might say, I didn't like enjoy this as much. He goes, he was the kind of man that would listen. Hmm. I think there's a lot of tellingness in that. He didn't have an ego. Someone could come to him. I mean, at this point, he's actually got quite fame. He probably can be decently confident. He has a writing gifted. He's gifted in the writing camp. And yet, if someone comes to him and gives him feedback, he listens. He doesn't go, ah, well, you know what? I know what I'm doing. Hmm. Clearly found success. So, I like that. You know, it reminds me, oddly enough, of Gordon Ramsay. And um, when you see him on Kitchen Nightmares or whatever. He says to people, I never read my good reviews. I only read my bad ones. Mm. And of course, Lewis for years had had the Inklings that, who gave him feedback. And now that the Inklings have kind of stopped formally meeting, he didn't have that. So I love that as he's writing to children, he would ask a child for his, his feedback. I also love this last quote from Doug's um, forward. He says, Jack is gone now, but he lives on for me in my memory and for all the world in his writings, and for you in this book. And uh, I think that that's very true, and I'm, I'm grateful to have it. Mm. It was interesting, speaking of Doug, too, to it'll come out, listeners. So I'd, I'd actually highly encourage you to listen to it, but the Will Voss interview. Actually, I'm going to interrupt you here, Matt. I'm, I'm going to say I think this is my favorite interview Matt has ever done. Mm. You may now continue. <laughs> that's high praise. <laughs> Words of affirmation. I appreciate it, David. I guess I didn't, having interviewed Douglas, maybe I didn't do a good job and didn't really realize he had a ministry where he'd invite people to his house and you would spend a significant amount of time there. And so to some degree, like, I don't want to say what Walter was to Lewis, Will was to Douglas, because that wasn't quite the case, but there was definitely a deep connection there of maybe six months, 12 months or something like that, where he was in Ireland living with Douglas and really was able to kind of support. Port Douglas in this ministry and, and spent a lot of time with him. And so it was really beautiful. Uh, it's kind of like a retreat house. They have a guest house and invite people to it. Yeah, Rath Vinden in, um, in Ireland. In fact, the books yes. that I have signed by Doug, uh, a friend of mine went to visit Ireland and I gave her a passel of, of books. I gave her Lenten Lands and Horse and His Boy while she was staying at Rath Vinden. 
she got those signed. And uh, she said that there were tiles, uh, like Narnia tiles, all over the the mm. place, and a great deal of laughter, lots of lots of jokes and things. So. And, and just to clarify, some people were excited. Ministry, essentially, the ministry was, if I understood it correctly, they didn't advertise it, but anyone who really reached out and wanted to spend some time there, almost like a little mini retreat, have a beautiful in the countryside, a nice sacred rhythm of waking up and and just escape some of maybe the hoopla of everyday life. It was also a ministry for pastors and, you know, people yes. who had struggled. And so, they really had a heart for that. And I appreciate that ministry. Well, my takeaways from the forward. Firstly, I knew that Lewis liked horses, but I hadn't realized that he bought the Gresham boys a pony. Neither did I. Which I've got to say is a really good stepfather move. <laughs> if you're getting stepchildren, buy them a pony. They'll like you more. Um, sort of helps if you also wrote some of their favorite books. But the other thing that jumped out at me was that in Letters to American Lady, we found that Jack said that Douglas was a great comfort to him after Joy's death. And we talked about why that mm. might be. And in the forward, I think we possibly see the clearest reason why. Doug writes this, after my mother died when I was 14 years old, Jack and I became very close. You see, mother loved Jack and mother loved me. So for Jack and me, a little bit of her lived on in both of us. One of my strongest memories of Jack was the evening after my mother died. It was the first time I ever saw a grown man cry. He put his arm around me and I put mine around him and we tried to comfort each other. Hmm. There's a great scene in Shadowlands and I think it really captures a bit of this. Lewis was not really all that forthcoming with his emotions a lot of times. He was quite internal about them. And I love that they had this tender moment. And that legacy from Lewis um, continues to live on in Doug's life. And if you let me be so bold and then transition to the introduction, that was one of the comments that I made. In the introduction, we see it, but then also in that moment, David, of, well, actually, I think I'm not even going to the introduction. I'm going to the childhood part. <laughs> This is why I don't do the introductions. I was about to be so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, I'll circle back to this. Clearly, I can't do transitions like David does. But we see his father. He was. He didn't seem like he was like his father. He seemed like he was just a very different person than his father, which is cool because there could be some kind of a tendency to just kind of emulate the, the masculine figure in your life. And I think we see a little bit of a different Lewis. Mm. So next up, we have the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I will no longer be bold. <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> I'm assuming the introduction was written by the book's editors, Lyle Dorset and Marjorie Mead. Did you guys have any notes on that? And Matt, we're talking about the introduction now. Introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Well played. Uh, I actually did bring out three different quotes that I liked. Here's one of them. The child as reader is neither to be patronized nor idolized. Mm -hmm. We talk to him as man to man. We, of course, must try to do children no harm. We may, under the omnipotence, sometimes dare to hope that we may do them good. Hmm. I just really liked his respect towards children, and I think there's something we can learn from that. There's such a wisdom and beauty and an innocence in them that we need to foster and protect. Yeah, but you need to carry on with that quote because the next line is my favorite line. But only such good as involves treating them with respect. Once in a hotel dining room, I said, rather too loudly, I loathe prunes. 
So do I, came an unexpected six-year-old voice from another table. Sympathy <laughs> was instantaneous. Neither of us thought it funny. We both knew that prunes were far too nasty to be funny. That is the proper meaning between man and child as independent personalities. And so the fact that he could have that and then describe that so well. Yeah, my favorite bit. See, Andrew, I just, I know you so well. I was like, Andrew's going to pick it up here. I'm going to stop it there. And it's just going to be a boom, boom. Yeah. Well, and we both preempted David. So, sorry. For that. <laughs> He's David. So, this is, we've got a Google shared doc that we all can see here. And as we know, I don't read David's notes that he does. And so, I clearly just stole from him and he's axed out that <laughs> section from his section in real time. <laughs> David's always batting cleanup. Totally fine. The second one, I don't need to read it, was the original quote on childish things. I just loved that. And then... The final one was one that we're all very familiar of, but could one not steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. And it was just some commentary around just the beauty of being able to steal past some of our, it, it, particularly with the fiction in the Narnia series, some of our boundaries and walls that we have put up over life. And I really wanted to bring that one back up. Well, and David just X'd out a quote I was hoping that he would mention because I wanted to follow up on that. Well, actually, real quick, wasn't wasn't the – I should have put more of my quote. This is classic me. That was the part I liked. But wasn't the, wasn't the context around that that we maybe lose our feeling and our ability to understand and feel the sufferings of Christ because of what we've been told and taught? And his point was if we enter this into an imaginary world, we might be able to feel it a little bit more, the story. Yeah. Wasn't that the context? Yeah. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. He talks about the feeling that church is supposed to inspire um, is one of the numinous. Yes. And, but the uncomfortable clothes, he, was, he had difficulty with the clothes, the, the buttons that were digging into his, you know, into his knee and the stiff collars that he couldn't fasten because of his thumbs and, you know, and stained glass. And he was forced to go, well, forced to go to church. They went to church because his grandfather was the priest. He also makes this distinction of reading books when he was a young boy um, in public that he read in private, you know, and secretively. And he was freed from the fear of being very grown up. And I think that there's a distinction between being adult and being grown up. And that's part of why Susan is too young, um, is not old enough to have started reading fairy tales again. She was very concerned with being a grown up. And I don't think it's sexist. Lewis talks about people rushing on to the very most trivial part of one's life and then trying to stay there. And so this rushing to your 20s, and then you see it in plastic surgery and all other things, hair dye and toupees, rushing back to the 20s or the 30s, you know, as if each part of life isn't to be enjoyed as a gift from God. And Lewis talked about reading fairy tales as part of incorporating where he was as a young boy, but now as a grown-up, he could do it with, um, without the kind of fear of looking childish. Um, and I think that intrinsic in that is our Lord's statement that unless you change and become like a little child, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I think even Lewis's adult mature work in writing fairy stories and his and Tolkien's work in rehabilitating fairy story as a genre was an effort to follow Christ. Mm. And the section we were quoting there was from the wonderfully titled essay, Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best Words to Be Said. <laughs> oh, Walter. Uh, 
I like it. But yes, so we had we had the one quotation where he talks about when you try and force yourself to feel as you should feel, very often that freezes feelings. Uh, but if, in an imaginary world, you, when you strip the ideas from their stained glass and Sunday school associations, you can slip past um, and feel them for the first time in their real potency. That's slipping past the watchful dragons. Also in that essay, he writes this, some people seem to think I began asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children. This is a very cynical claim. You often hear a lot of people that don't know Lewis very well. They'll say, oh, this is what he was trying to do. He says, no. He says, I couldn't write that way at all. Everything began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't even anything Christian about them. That element pushed in of its own accord. And for those people who are familiar with Tolkien, that's something very similar to what Tolkien said about The Lord of the Rings. He says, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. This is why our dynamic works, because you always seem to pick up the thing I miss, uh, and then I hear it. I like this because it's like, I have nothing against Christian music. I love certain Christian musics. But some of my favorite artists are, and they will even state this, they don't want to be put into a category or not. They're like, I'm a deep Christian, I'm writing music, and of course my relationship with God will work its way into it. But some of their songs will just be more about life and their relationship with their spouse. Some of them will be deep suffering and turning to God. And the one I really think about is Need to Breathe. I love Need to Breathe. Mm-hmm. And they just, it kind of works in naturally, but they, wouldn't, they don't like to just say we're explicitly thinking through Christian songs. And so I, I think that's cool that Lewis kind of puts it this way too. It's, it's if it's who you are at your core, of course it's going to work it into any artistic thing that you make or build or bring. T Bone Burnett, the um, producer and musician, um, says, "As a Christian, you can either write about the light or write about what you see by the light." Ooh, that's a good way to put it. And I'll even go him one further. Um, I think Christians can write about darkness because, like in Screw Tape, mm. you know, we learned that those who don't believe the bad don't know bad or good. The good know both. And so I think that that's some of what Lewis is doing. And like any author, you write the story that you love and whatever's inside of you kind of comes in. So your worldview kind of comes, comes bounding in like Aslan did. So yeah, I th- and I think that he's really successful. I love the quote about the picture. And he writes an essay, I think after he wrote Till We Have Faces. And he said, all of my books. That's your one reference, Andrew. (laughs) One reference. (laughs) All my seven Narnian books and my three science fiction books began with seeing pictures in my head. But his other notable fiction, Till We Have Faces, did not begin with pictures. So, I think he writes that in 1960 or something. This is why it's not as good. I mean, that's why it's just different. (laughs) Yes, I refer you once again to the text. (laughs) Well, there Lewis references his other books. And here I wanted to quote something that's quoted in, in this introduction. It's from a letter to William Kinter. He says, it's fun laying out all my books as a cathedral. Mm. First of all, I just love that idea of of all of his corpus. Let's let's build this into a church. And he says, personally, I'd make miracles and the other treaties the cathedral school. So that's a a place where people go and learn. And um, it's it's the part of the command to love the Lord with all of your mind. And then he goes on to say, my children's stories are the real side chapels, each with its own little altar. Mm. And so for people that are unfamiliar with... um, old church architecture, you, you would usually have a central altar 
where the main celebration of the Eucharist would take place. But you then have all of these side chapels, and they would be for personal devotion, as well as for private masses. So when groups often come on pilgrimage to a place, they'll often then celebrate mass at one of these side altars. What do you think he means when he says these children's stories are the real side chapels, each with its own little altar? You know, I have a thought about that because in the cathedrals that I've been in, sometimes the side chapels are devoted to different saints, right? Mm -hmm. And so, maybe each of those saints are the different planets and the different planetary characteristics of Aslan, right? They're different views, different, just like the side chapels, the saints embody some aspect of, you know, of God's life on earth. Um, and so, maybe there's a little bit of that. Here's another way to look at it. Some people say the best way to go to God is just alone in your prayers. And then the next best way is to read the Bible. And then they may dismiss everything else. I think that some of what has happened in the Protestant lack of sympathy for saints, granted there were some excesses about that in earlier centuries, but I think that the saints would be appalled to think that people would pray to them and not to God instead of through them to the God who they loved, right? And they would want their life to be like a stained glass window, a portrayal of some aspect of the light that you might not see through another window. And so, I think that that may be what, kind, what Lewis is maybe trying to do in the Narnia books is, here's another way to look at God and the way that God interacts with people. And here's another, and here's another, and it incorporates history and story and all the rest. So, that's at least my stab at it. What do you think, Matt? Well, I was actually going to say something different here, a quick side thing based on what you just said. I'd encourage listeners, because it's been a, a couple years now, to go back. You can search. I just did it right now to confirm on at least the Apple podcast. It was February 11, 2021, the Dr. Chris Armstrong after hours conversation I did, because that kind of touches on what Andrew just mentioned here that there was there was a lot of fear of over mediation that was happening with the church between God and people and there's probably like Andrew said excessiveness but then there was like an overcorrection to like complete and entire individualism and so I think there's a really beautiful conversation with Dr. Armstrong that really goes back and forth of just some of the beauties of both sides of it mediation but then individualism that brings you close to and it's not necessarily an either or but it could be a both and I just searched Chris Armstrong pints in the all podcast and it popped up the very first one, but it's season four, episode 37. Yeah, that's a good reference. My own take on this passage is that the central altar in a cathedral is usually pretty grand and it's surrounded by a baldacchino, great works of art. It's magnificent. Whereas the side chapels tend to be a little bit more humble usually um, and a little bit more secluded and all around less impressive. and. I think that's how a lot of people view Lewis's works. I would say incorrectly in terms of when people ask me, what Lewis book should I read? My first question is very often, have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Mm. And if they turn up their nose, it's like, no, 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 stop that. This is as rich as Lewis as yeah. you'll ever find him. Yeah. And so I think in, in the same way, it's often in those side chapels where we have our more intimate moments with God mm -hmm. in our personal devotions. And I think in the same way for him, the, the quote-unquote children's stories are more intimate and have a very special place in Lewis's heart. Hmm. They're often overlooked. And I like how he sets out his treatises like miracles as the cathedral school. And so, when I get that question, what I'll very often do is say, well, what do you like to read? And if they like to read apologetics or theology, great. And if they like to read 
biographies or autobiographies, wonderful. And if they are a fan of letters or of fiction, the fact that his whole work has got all of the kind of depth and variety of different ways that are pointing to God of a cathedral, I think, is a, is a brilliant way to conceive of his, uh, of his corpus. Matt, would you like to introduce the next section? <laughs> I had a feeling you were about to say that. <laughs> oh, how about this beautiful transition? Now to Jack's childhood. Direct straight <laughs> to the point. No, this section though was was interesting. I would say, first of all, there wasn't anything I would that that was like particularly new to me. But I was actually pretty impressed if you guys get a chance, don't skip it. It's a really great just fast summary, mm-hmm. eight pages that kind of gets you through some of the highlight reels. Bringing back to what I had mentioned earlier. I think knowing how tender he was with Douglas was cool against the juxtaposition of his fatherly figure, who was very different and and nothing necessarily negative on his father per se, but I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. I'd be curious too, what, what I love the psychology of development, nature versus nurture, and you have some of that. There's a tendency to drift that way of just what were the influences that shaped him in his life that allowed him to be such a tender, jolly, funny individual. I also thought that there was a beauty. I can see how that beauty in their play, their imagination at childhood had a profound impact later in their life. I think that was a key point they were trying to point out and stress. And that may in part speak to what I just mentioned to why he's so tender with children. I mean, he, he kind of had both extremes in childhood. So like kind of like pre nine, pre 10, that was really beautiful, some wonderful tenderness and warmth and imagination and then a little bit of post that was a bit of a more struggle and darkness. And so maybe experiencing both of them made him very sensitive to that. I'm speculating. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear what Crystal Hurd would have to say about the father mm-hmm. bits. Um, I think that we get a really fragmented picture of mm. Albert Lewis just because there's so little information mm. um, and direct writing from him. I think that although Lewis certainly had loads of problems with his father and, you know, his father was a really ambivalent figure, his father was also very loving. His father was uh, an excellent reader. There were lots and lots of conversations. Um, and he delighted in conversation with his sons. Mm. Sometimes too much. I mean, I think he pried into their lives a little bit. And he valued intellectual debate. He sent both boys to Kirkpatrick, where they really kind of learned how to think. And I'm glad you brought that up too, because it's important to never judge. I remember this was a high schooler that said this, never judge a person for the choice they make until you know the choices they had in front of them. I was like, dang. That's wise. Yeah. Like he, he had his own struggles and sufferings and stuff, and he he's making the best of his situation and had brought a lot of beauty into it, as you just described, Andrew. And so that's like really good content. He lost his wife. I mean, that's a really yeah. hard thing to go through, and then yeah. to somehow maintain being a father and his brother within the the six month and his father in law. And then we don't. I don't know. And Crystal May. I don't know anything about his relationship with his own father. Um, and so there's certainly some ambivalence, but I think that there is, you know, with everybody. Do you think one, my one final question I had there, do you think they did bring up Waynard and they brought up Waynard, particularly around Warney's situation? Winyard. 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 It seemed like it was a big, a, a really tough time for Warney. And at least that's the, the picture that they painted. Do you think that that played a role in, in, alcoholism later or is it just purely the war objectively or absolutely the the way that i understand recovery anyway and and addiction is that addiction is very often a compensation for some kind of tragedy Hmm. often in um in one's childhood 
And mm. so when you have that kind of grief and tragedy in childhood, you learn how to compensate. And I think that Warney's alcoholism is probably matched by Lewis's own codependence. Mm. I think that, that Lewis's extreme commitment to helping everybody is in some ways, um, I think that you could see it as, as kind of being a codependent way of dealing with things. I'm going to go and help out. I'm going to try and solve all of the problems. And so, and the kinds of tragedies that they have, you know, the loss of three important family members. And remember, Flora's father lived with them and he was moved out to die so that Flora's nurse could move in so that she could die. So within six months, and McGrath points this out really well, he pulls up the, the chronology you know, brilliantly. Within six months, paternal uncle, mater, uh, maternal grandfather, and mother, and then sent to a school run by a guy who was criminally insane. Um, <laughs> that's probably going to leave a Andrew, mark. Andrew, I feel seen right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have a, a family member who is sober now, but that struggled with alcoholism, went into rehab. And then I have been told by my best friend who's also a therapist that I like to fix and save everyone <laughs> around me in my life. <laughs> Maybe I have codependency issues. Yeah, I, I <laughs> had some relationships with alcoholics and that led to a number of years going to Al-Anon, which is the recovery meetings for those who are in relationship with alcoholics. And I found great help there um, and help that kind of corresponded and coincided with um with Christianity. And so it was, yeah, there's, there was certainly some damage there. And you see mm -hmm. the same thing in Doug Gresham. His father was an alcoholic and physically abusive of his mother. And there were some, there's some stuff. And Lewis points out in mere Christianity, we don't know how far somebody has come um, mm. to show up in our church. And it's one so, of my favorite things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that we are all in need of the great healer. In this section, I loved Jack's description of his family in his diary entry when he was eight. I'm going to say that again, when he was eight. <laughs> he writes, Happy is, of course, the master of the house and the man in whom you can see strong Lewis features, bad temper, very sensible, nice when not in a temper. Mammy is like most middle-aged ladies, stout brown hair, spectacles, knitting her chief industry. I am like most boys of eight, and I am like Pappy, bad temper, thick lips, thin, and generally wearing a jersey. <laughs> there was also a lovely bit where he talks about when Warney's coming home, and it, it's a sort of delightful formality that we don't have today. He says, we shake hands and we begin to talk. You know, mm. Your big brother comes home and you shake hands before you start your discussion. <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah. You can often tell um, just how anachronistic a movie is. If it's a historical movie about in the English and you see the men hugging, you're like, yeah, yeah. screenwriters don't know That's what they're the, doing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pappy. So, he describes his dad at eight as bad temper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was actually also a lovely bit of a letter in which Flora, who just for people who don't know, that's Lewis's mother. She talks about the, the development of the boys, Warney and Jack. And it very much describes my own experience as a parent, just like when every now and again, suddenly your kid opens their mouth and this entire sentence comes out and you have no idea they've been aware of any of this stuff and they just sort of like drop a truth bomb on you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I felt seen in that one. My niece, it's amazing to me what, this is why I love what Lewis says with respect to kids. This is my first experiencing witnessing children go from one to two to three to four, it's up to five. When Margaret was having a conversation with her, I was there and she was just like, asking her about picking out clothes she goes yeah you know i used to 
in the morning, I'd put some clothes on, see how I felt. And sometimes it would feel good and I would just keep wearing it. But, you know, I just haven't been feeling that so much anymore and wanting to do that. And just the way she spoke, I was just like, I didn't really realize there was this much intentionality or thought into this kind of mm -hmm. stuff and like thinking through your emotions and how all of this comes together. I mean, it kind of blew my mind. Yeah. When when you start seeing your kids having interior lives, it's, it's yes. kind of shocking. That's a good way to describe <laughs> that. The interior life at such a young age. In this section, we also get the he is Jaxie announcement <laughs> when Lewis changed his name at three years old. And there was no mention of uh, a dog being hit by a car in this retelling. Andrew, does that story just come from Douglas? Because a couple of people have asked me about that recently. Yep. Um, so there's a, another correcting of the chronology that needs taking place. And what I'm just going to suggest is that, uh, that one of you guys do an after hours episode with the wonderful pastor and, uh, and professor Reggie Weems, uh, who's a wonderful, sweet man. And one area of his research recently in the last couple of years has been the name change. And so he has visited Ireland and talked to family members and he has actually tracked down all of that. And I don't think that it was a dog. I think that it was the driver of a train or a cart or something. Um, but Reggie has all of this on his fingertips. He's great, wonderful guy, sweet and humble. He's also the world's expert on Lewis and Warney's nurse, Lizzie Endicott, mm. who's mentioned in Surprised by Joy, and very committed to Lewis's Irish life. And so I would defer answering that question because he has on his fingertips what I could only strain to grab. But the he is Jaxi conversation appears to happen when Lewis is about two and a half. Dang. And he refuses to answer to any other name, not Babsy, not Clive. It's just Jaxi. There's also um, somewhere, I think it's in his diary or somewhere, um, there's a, an anecdote about Lewis at age seven or eight or nine or something coming downstairs and slumping into a chair and saying, Father, I have a prejudice against the French. <laughs> His father says, well, Jax, why do you have a prejudice against the French? And he harumphs, Father, if I knew that, it wouldn't be a prejudice, would it? <laughs> so, yeah, it's even his writings early on are show a really intelligent mind. But let's do get Reggie on for um, for a half hour. It would be a, it would be a delight for our listeners. All right, I'll add him to the list. <laughs> As we wrap up the section, there were there are a few things uh, I just wanted to note. One is something I always forget: the danger of tuberculosis mm. in Jack's childhood, where they, people were absolutely terrified of sending kids out when it was wet because they would fear that they'd get TB. And also there's a mention of the wardrobe that mm -hmm. the kids would climb into and Jack would tell them stories. And um, sometimes people think he got in there as well, but I know Douglas Gresham said that nah, he was absolutely terrified of enclosed spaces. So he said mm. it's much more likely that he was telling stories to kids in the wardrobe. That's, that's his take on it at least. Huh. Well, I love that, that's, that that story is there and I love that it comes from an unpublished letter from a family member. You know, it points once again, of course, to uh, the glories of the Wade Center. Yes, the mm -hmm. children would climb into the wardrobe sitting quietly in the dark while Jax told us his tales of adventure. Not, it looks like it started pretty young with him. Lastly, there is a mention of Boxen, which was mm -hmm. the imaginary land that he built with Warney. We will go into it in more detail in season 10 <laughs> when we do Surprised by Joy. Did you guys see that there's plans to bring Boxen to life as a TV show? Oh, no. Dear Lord, what a boring TV show. <laughs> <laughs>
Warney wrote stories about India, um, a magical fantasy land called India, and Lewis wrote stories about a magical fantasy land called Animal Land, and the two were connected by railways and stuff. Um, and together they called their whole land Boxen. But Lewis later admits that he didn't know that adults could talk about things that weren't completely stultifying and boring, you know. Um, so, a lot of the adult conversations he heard were about politics and things like that. And so, the characters, the adult animals, dressed animals in boxing, you know, have these kind of really boring political conversations. And so, he says that there's not a whole lot of connection between boxing and, um, uh, and Narnia. I hope they do a TV show I know. about that well. I'm actually rather curious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to Narnia Webb. They've got the article. That was the first place I saw it. So that's pretty much the end of all of the opening sections of Letters to Children. And in the next episode, we will actually get to the letters themselves. So before we wrap up, anything else you guys would like to add? Well, I'd just add a little bit of advice um, that I actually take from one of the letters. Lewis gives advice on writing, and he advises one of his um, correspondents to write for the ear as well as the eye. And Walter, of course, talks about Lewis would dip his pen and, and think of the next four or five words, and then he would mouth the words as he was writing them. I think that that's good advice, especially as you're getting through letters to children. Uh, maybe read it with a friend. Get up on Zoom you know, have some folks over for coffee, read those letters aloud to each other and just see how those words sound. Because I think Lewis is being very deliberate to use vocabulary and tone and even length of sentence in a way that would delight the children. And I got nothing. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution. <laughs> David and I are here furiously trying to act surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to our intern, Julia. Thanks to all of our listeners and Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Mary Margaret, Aldo, Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, Bud1, Bud2, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week, particularly on Tuesdays and the prayer requests in our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please pick up a copy of Letters to Children. And join us next time. When we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 <laughs>